cover here. Uh, we're going to start out by looking at the timing of these chapters as we look at chapters 32 through 35, I think is what we're covering today. And I want you to keep in mind that as we get to chapter 36, we're, that's where we hit the, um, the Assyrian invasion. So we are right on the brink of the Assyrian invasion in these chapters if they're in chronological order. And there's something in here that makes me think that they are. So if we were to go to just kind of skip forward quickly to chapter 32, verse 10, we have this phrase, days upon a year, which is a little bit of an odd phrase. And it, it is odd in Hebrew as well, but, but most translators, and I'm inclined to agree with this, um, say it, it should be translated a year and a few days. And if that's the case, then this prophecy is given, being given just a little over a year before the siege of Jerusalem. That means because uh, the Assyrians, it will take them some months as they march through the country, they're really just months away from the beginning of that invasion. And so that's worth noting that this prophecy is really upon the brink of all of this destruction happening. And, and that timing can help us understand some things. Now, as is so often the case, the beginning of chapter 32 is really just a continuation of the last chapter. So let's read the last few verses of the last chapter, chapter 31. Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted, right? They've left God. They haven't been paying attention to God. They haven't allowed him. They've, they've been doing foolishness, drunkenness, and looking to the world, and so they don't allow him to teach them truth. But eventually, in that day, every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Then shall the Assyrian fall with the sword, not of a mighty man, and the sword, not of a mean man, shall devour him, but he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be discomfited. So look at what he's saying. At that point, when they finally have gotten rid of their idols, and by the way, Hezekiah officially leads them all, and they all join him, but they, they gather out idols that have been put in the temple, but idols from all over Jerusalem, and they throw them into the valley and burn them and destroy them. All right, they, they literally do that, and as a result, not long after that, the Assyrian does fall with the sword, not that that either the mighty men of Israel nor the humble men of Israel, remember mean means humble, are the ones destroying them. It's God that destroys them, right? He shall pass over to his stronghold for fear and his princes shall be afraid of the ensign, saith the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and his furnace in Jerusalem. So he's saying the king of Assyria will return. He will flee home um, because of the destruction that will come upon him when Israel has decided to get rid of their idols and to really listen to God. So now we go to chapter 32. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. So let's, before we just read this whole thing, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, clearly, in a way, this is referring to Hezekiah. Right, he's the king who reigns in righteousness, and he has princes that are working with him that rule in judgment. And as a result, a man, meaning, I think probably Isaiah, but is specifically King Hezekiah in this case, become a hiding place. He becomes the the thing that helps him find shelter as he and Isaiah get them to turn to God and and rely on God, and then God comes out and his covenant promises and protects them. So they have this um, wonderful refuge that they're given because they have a righteous king to follow. Now, of course, the greatest fulfillment of this will be Christ, right? Josiah and other good kings can be a fulfillment of this, but Christ is the greatest fulfillment of this. But its immediate fulfillment seems to be Hezekiah. We get that people are going to be okay. 
Now let's look down at verse four. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge and the tongue of the stammerer shall be ready to speak plainly. Remember, we had just been talking in the earlier chapters about the prideful people who have their, their crowns of pride and they are um, drunken and so on because they're turning to the ideas and the joys of the world. Um, and as a result, they sounded like stammerers and they, they couldn't talk. They, they couldn't uh, teach truth nor receive truth. You remember we went through that. But now when they turn to God, it won't be that way anymore. And as a result, the vile person, remember how we talked about how vile they were, shall no more be called liberal, nor the churl to be said to be bountiful. So this is an, an example of that idea of people calling that which is evil good and good evil. Vile people had been called the good and kind and liberal people. And um, the, the mean people were said to be good and kind, right? The, because the world's idea of what represents goodness and kindness and how to take care of people and, and so on is not God's idea. And so, so much, uh, President Benson once said that uh, there are many people in the world who appear to have good intentions and are, are trying to find good ways to help people, but when they're not doing it in God's way, they're actually then doing harm. And I think we see a, a tremendous amount of that. And we call these people good and kind and liberal, but they're not. They're doing things the wrong way for the wrong reasons. Um, and not in acknowledging God or turning to God for these things. But at some point, when we rally behind a righteous king, all of that is exposed, and we no longer um, fall for that, and we turn to God. This is just good, beautiful stuff. In any case, we're going to jump forward also to uh, verses 9 through 12 and ask this question. Why is God addressing women in these verses? Uh, why is he uh, singling them out? And I, I'd say it this way, by, by addressing the women of Judah, Isaiah is really making it clear that the calamity that's about to come, it's not going to affect just armies and government, right? It's not just the soldiers, it's not the kings and the princes. It reaches into every home in Judah. It affects every family in the kingdom. And, and he's unhappy that right now they seem to be at ease. They're not worried about the future. They have no idea of the penalty that's coming to them because they've trusted in the wrong power. Instead, they're full of their pride and their drunkenness and their stammering, and it's not just the leaders, so that's who he's been focusing on, not just the political or military leaders, it's the, the families and the homes. Um, and so Isaiah is really trying to jolt them out of that complacency and pleading for them to listen to him, letting them know this affects, affects everyone, even the best that Zion has to offer, the mothers, the children, the families, this will reach everywhere. And so um, the, the things he's... Uh, teaching them should be listened to by everyone. All right, so that's just to kind of uh, get us started as you do your reading. Hopefully that will help you as you do some of your reading. I also wanna just suggest as you read uh, Isaiah 33, and we'll talk about this in class, I'll ask you the same question, but I, I wanna ask you, what does it teach us about keeping and breaking covenants? When you read Isaiah 33, look for that theme and be prepared to talk about it in class. All right, thank you. 